0: Linux Out Loud is firing up our mics, connecting those headphones as we search the community for themes to expound upon. We keep the banter friendly, the conversation somewhat on topic, and we have fun doing it. This week we are spouting off about does crowdfunding pay off? Let's get into episode 42. Linux Out Loud is brought to you by DigitalOcean and Bitwarden. Joining me this week are my two amazing co-hosts, the princess of photography, Wendy, and some guy named Nate who uses something called OpenSUSE. Never heard of it in my entire life. How are you both doing? Fantastic.
1: I'd say I'm doing pretty good.
0: Did everybody have a good Thanksgiving? Were you guys able to spend some time with family, relax at all?
2: I had a great Thanksgiving. I got up at 2.30 in the morning, Thanksgiving day, to smoke a turkey. It turned out fantastic. Mm. At about six-ish hours or six, seven hours in, I have to check my notes. I took the two halves of the turkey off of the smoker and then I wrap it in foil, but then I drizzle honey on it, locally sourced honey, and uh, put it back in the smoker, all wrapped up. It makes a very juicy, sweet turkey and uh, makes for great post-Thanksgiving turkey sandwiches.
1: I love smoked turkey. It's probably my absolute favorite. And this was the first year in, I'd say, probably five years, maybe more, that I didn't have smoked turkey. Normally, I make Thanksgiving. And part of that is because there's a whole lot of things I can't eat. We've talked about that before. And when you are a holiday that's Surrounded by food, it's really nice to be able to eat the food that's associated with the holiday. But we actually traveled this year, saw some family, had some fun. But it's all good. I did bring some of the dishes I could eat to some of those celebrations. And I have two turkeys in the freezer, so we will still get smoked turkey, just not for Thanksgiving. What about you, Bill?
0: I had a very nice, relaxing Thanksgiving uh, my good friend Neil came up to visit and have Thanksgiving with us. Uh, we went over to my mother-in-law's house and she fed us until we could not physically take any more food. That sounds like fun. <laughs> it was a great time. So Nate, talk to us about some issues you've been having with the 3D printer that you have.
2: So I have an Ender 3, not the version 2, It's just the regular Ender 3, a less expensive one. And I've been working on printing off this computer case build that I'm doing with my daughter. We'll talk about that at another time, but the 3D printer decided that it would react very negatively to a power surge. In fact, we were recording Linux out loud when it had that power surge, and it knocked out not completely, but it screwed up the extruder axis of it. Like it couldn't actually move the motor. I wasn't sure if it was the motor that went bad or the board that went bad. So after doing some testing, I discovered that the motor's fine, but the controller board. Is not able to read things properly anymore and it would just kind of like jitter as opposed to spin the axis. I purchased a replacement board. I actually spent some time like looking through to see what kind of upgrades, I mean, maybe just do an upgraded board to it or whatever. And then I was reading about all the different steps you have to do to make it work with the stepper motors. I'm like, you know what? I am just going to put a bog standard Ender 3 controller in there and I'll just go to the next version up that's supposedly quiet. Hopefully that just works so I don't have to like, you know, wrestle around with it. And that's what I did. And now the one irritating thing that Creality does on the 3D printer is they have to put shmoo, you know, like hot glue shmoo over all the connectors so they don't wiggle out. But it means that when you want to go to replace a motherboard, now you have to do surgery to get the old board out. So I just use my solder station. I have like a, a heat gun on there, really hot one. So I didn't make it 400 degrees Celsius, but I you know, made it I think, 200 or so just to melt the schmoo enough so I could pull the connectors out. And I made sure I took pictures of everything so that I'd put it back together properly. The, the new board looks pretty close, to, identical to the old board. And, uh, you know, I put it all together. When I went to run it, like, I couldn't hear it. Like, I'm it was really, like, disconcerting. I can't tell if the thing is running, whatever. So, I'm, like, trying to check it out. No, it's actually, it's running fine. Everything's fine. But because it uses, like, quiet controllers or something, I don't know, what maybe just change to the frequency or something. Now, I can't actually hear it operate actually provides a smoother finish to the prints as well compared to the old controller board. I miss the sound. Is that crazy? I don't think it's crazy. I think the sound kind of helps you know that it's
0: working and behaving the way that it should. But my question for you is, when you get this all working, and, and this message just came across my screen, somebody named Matt wants to know when you're 3D printing his life-size replicate. Not sure what that's about. Matt
1: says lots
2: of weird things.
1: <laughs> Well, if I'm being honest, I think it actually is a little bit strange that you missed the sound, but all I can think about is when I had my 3D printer in our room and I could not sleep because the darn thing was running and it was miserable to do really long prints and I need to move our 3D printer again. Right now it's in the dining room area, but it's really close to the kitchen and it just gets some grease and whatnot on it that's not good for the 3D (laughs) printer because it is too close to that cooking space but I'm not sure where to put the gosh darn thing and I've thought about bringing it back into my bedroom and then I think about oh my gosh those super long prints no never mind I don't really want to do that so yeah I think you're a little bit crazy for Missing the sound.
2: Yeah. Okay. I'll acknowledge I'm crazy. Now, I do appreciate the the (laughs) smoother finish. That is actually an improvement and I do like that. Oh, I bet. It's a nicer feel to it. That's the only real issue I have. It doesn't print any slower. It doesn't print any faster. It's just smoother finish. You know, the old one made kind of some fun sounds when it went like in circles, whatever. I, I enjoyed that. So, this one doesn't do that. It just moves. Really very boring. So, since it's, you know, no secret... You know, anytime we have inclement weather, it seems like we have power issues because there's so many trees and the power lines and meh. I'd like to get a battery backup solution for the 3D printer. So According to the data sheets, I don't have like one of those kilowatt things to, to determine how many, how much power it's actually pulling out. But according to the data sheets, at max, it'll draw 125 watts. Let's say that's wrong. Let's say it's 150. Let's say it, like it, it surges, you know, or whatever. How much of a UPS would I have to have for that just to be able to sustain the fluctuations? Not extended out periods, but just to sustain it enough to not blow up another board or mess some other piece of circuitry up. So anything that I have surge suppressors on, I have no problems with them. Anything that doesn't have a surge suppressor, I've lost appliances and whatnot. You no, know, any thoughts on that? I know Bill, you're kind of a when it comes to such computery things, you you seem like you're, you're quite the expert. At least more of an expert than I am. I'm
0: a firm believer in more power is always better power when it comes to battery backups.
2: Ah, the, the Tim Taylor approach from Home Improvement.
0: Exactly. Use a bigger hammer. Yeah, okay. I will tell you that on my particular rig, I use a 1500 mm-hmm. VA UPS, which okay. gives me ample enough time to gracefully shut down the computer and power the desktop, the monitor, and some of the other things that I have sitting on my desk and it has helped before in situations with brownouts or power surges where I've lost the UPS, but saved the hardware. So the UPS did its job.
2: I'd rather lose the UPS than the hardware. It can be the sacrificial lamb in my setup, as it were. So you're saying a 1500 VA?
0: I use a 1500 VA at home,
2: but... Right, okay.
0: I wonder, Nate, could you build your own UPS using open source hardware?
2: I probably could. In fact, I've been noodling that idea around quite a bit. The concern is whether or not the control boards that I either build or source will have the immediate uninterrupted behavior that is expected. That's really the only concern.
0: I will say this, the NAS unit that I have at home sends me an alert Via email in the event that the NAS goes into or the NAS detects that the UPS is in battery mode. And then it sends Hmm. me another email when it has returned to AC mode. And considering that the NAS, while a commercial product is Linux based, I would think that using a software like NUT, which is network UPS tools and an open source single board computer, you might be able to build something that functions in a similar capacity.
2: The other thought I had too on that was. I could put on the other side of the power supply, it outputs 24 volts. I'm thinking I could probably put some sort of a DC battery backup of some kind right there as well. Not even doing the AC part of the backup. The AC part of the backup is more for like surges. So I don't know if that would work well. Something might still get through. I don't know, but that's a really good idea about building your own. It's something to think about. Now I got more stuff to think about. Thanks, Bill. You actually made it worse. That's my job.
0: <laughs> My job is to learn from you while at the same time making your life more difficult if I can
2: help it. Oh, good. That's good. It makes more excitement in life, I think, or something. Well, Wendy, it looks like you've got a cricket problem. Like, is it the same thing that I have in my studio here in the, in the summertime at night?
1: No, it's not the same crickets that sometimes we can hear in the background as you're recording a show. And yes, there have been a few when your buddy the cricket is back there singing away <laughs> as we're doing a show. This is one that is meant for cutting things out, using for graphic design and the like. Our main mentor for our teams, or at least the lead mentor, the seasoned mentor, however you want to put it, she has a cricket that she's had for quite a while. I can't remember the name of the one that she has, but it does all the big things. It's not one of the highest end models, but it's not the lowest end model too. And she uses for all kinds of stuff like the team t-shirts, team sweatshirts, cuts out different vinyl and attaches them to the clothes so that the team is consistently having, I don't necessarily want to say brand awareness, but you know who belongs on the team. And it's pretty common, especially when we were at regionals and state last year for them to have matching shirts. And I love the idea of this design process. I've been watching some tutorials on making stickers. My daughter is fantastic with the art and stuff that she does. She absolutely loves stickers. So that's kind of a road to go down. And so I've been looking at these because I do find them interesting and all the stuff that you can do with them. One of the things that's been holding me back is I do not want to run a Windows system. I don't want to have a dedicated Windows system in order to use the Cricut. Now I can use things like Inkscape. My daughter uses Krita all the time for her different art designs. So actually forming the art that way is fine. But I'm not sure if you have to use their dedicated piece of software in order to transfer that file over and finally have it cut. Or if there's a way to run that software on Linux, which is what I would prefer to do. I do have that Windows system that we've talked about before that get used for very specific school purposes that Only a Windows system can be used for or a Mac just because this specific secure browser doesn't have a Linux version that we can download. So that's the reason there for that Windows laptop. I have used it for some other software like my Corsair mouse. That was really the fastest, easiest way in order to set up the rainbow vomit on it to have it look the way I want to is by going through the Windows application And I really, like I said, I just really don't want to use Windows. I want to have the flexibility of this hardware. I've got screen printing stuff that I don't use. I really haven't touched in like a year and a half, maybe two years, just because it's a pain in the butt. So I've got the screen printing stuff that you have to set the screens with UV light. And so the rest of the room has to be dark while you're doing that process. You can underexpose it, you can overexpose it, and the downside of underexposing is then when you go to do your screen print, it's too soft, and then you have ink coming through places that you don't want it, and then there is you overexpose your screen, and now it's way too hard, and actually getting that screen washed off is a ripping pain in the butt. So yes, I'm sure vinyl would have its own issues, But you can layer it for multiple colors, get some really cool effects. There's a list of shirts that my husband wants, like they've been on the wish list for a while. one that he's wanted me to make for my daughter for quite a while that says, sometimes I open my mouth and my dad comes out, which is true.
2: (laughs) I love that one. That is hilarious. You have to do that one. That's a non-negotiable at this point.
1: Right. It's non-negotiable. It has to happen. And I haven't done it because one, I don't have the stuff to clean the screens, and then just the hassle of trying to make sure that you're setting it properly. Doing it with the vinyl, I think, would be a lot of fun, give us more flexibility with some of the color options. And you can put multiple layers of ink down screen printing to get some really cool colors and designs, but it takes quite a while as you're waiting for each layer to... Dry or trying to get that next screen set down over top of it without messing up your layer underneath. I really love all the things that this one can do and all of the opportunities it has for the kids as far as some graphic design stuff and crafting type things. I am just unsure on the software side. I did recently throw this out to the Mastodon community. I've already gotten a response back. And the one I got right now so far isn't really positive.
2: Well, actually, I can help you with that. Believe it or not, I was being coy when I said cricket. Uh, I actually know what a cricket is. I have no experience with a (laughs) cricket. I am aware of professional level vinyl cutting like applications and how that works, how those plotters work. And I'm also aware that Inkscape has plugins so you can actually directly export things that you design in Inkscape with the vector graphics and whatnot and create the proper output file for different plotters. I thought I read somewhere that Cricut was something that there was a modular plugin for the Cricut, but I don't know for 100% certain because I've not tested it. I've actually considered getting a Cricut just because there's like small little things that I want to do. Like, you know, I have a friend who has a sign business and he has like all kinds of like vinyl cutting, whatever. When he cuts something, it's coming out of a five or six foot long wide roll, basically, that's being cut. So, I'm not going to ask him to cut like a little itty bitty decal out of green or whatever. If it comes up, it's just not efficient. You know what I'm saying? So, I've looked into, into a Cricut, like getting a used one even just to dork around with. With all that time that I have, to create like replacement decals or something like for my kids' toys and so forth. That was my application for it. If there's not like a direct plug I can't imagine the company to be so obtuse that they would have like crazy new drivers and purposefully handicapped devices for some nefarious reason. I mean, I could be wrong about that. I can't imagine they would do that.
1: See, and I know one of the things is like their software. I think their software itself for Cricut doesn't have a Linux download. So you'd have to use something else.
2: That's why I think Inkscape might work.
1: Yeah, I really like the idea of being able to use Inkscape and have a plugin for that that could go directly to the Cricut. So the one I'm looking at is the Cricut Maker. The newest version is the Cricut Maker 3. Yes, there's no Cricut Maker 2. It's kind of like what Ryzen did when they skipped a number generation, just so the two newest ones would be numbered the same when they come out with the Explorer 3, I think that's what it is, and then the Maker 3, so they're both on the same number. So this is the previous model, and it does just about everything the latest one can do, though you have to have a mat. The newest one, you can do some mat free cutting, which is pretty cool, and then the newest one is a bit faster and quieter. But for my use case, and when I'm looking at price-wise, being able to get the Maker so much cheaper, I'm like, ah, might as well. And then the other advantage of that is if there are plugins that can go into Ekscape, they're more likely to work because it's not the latest generation. Now, I'm not exactly sure when the Maker 3 came out. It could be plenty enough time that they've now got that working, but I will definitely do some digging into an Inkscape plugin, because that's a piece of software that I already have on my system. And it's one that I would definitely like to get to learn better. I've played with Photopea quite a bit. It's one of the pieces of software that I use in order to adjust the thumbnails every week for the show, because I have that in a PSD file. I made the button for our team on PhotoP just because I knew that my lead mentor that I was possibly sending it to would want a PSD file. But this gives me more of a reason to really dive into Inkscape better, get to know it better. And then with the potential of not having to touch that Cricut software, that proprietary software at all, and just get to play with the hardware.
2: Put a link into our shared chat here from leapoffaithcrafting.com inkscape cricket design space tutorial i haven't reviewed it at all but it looks like it pretty informative has some videos and whatnot nice it was updated about a year ago that may be helpful I don't know. I again I haven't tested any of this stuff. I've only read some things on it, but maybe this could be a solution. Just for me the thing that concerns me is, you know, buying a piece of hardware is such a commitment, and I know that buying a piece of hardware and I'm using it in a way that the manufacturer hasn't necessarily thought about, you know, Linux. Yeah. So I know that there's going to be a time commitment, a time suck on such a thing. So I know you're busy, but this could be Just another time suck for you because, you know, you have nothing else going on.
1: Right, absolutely nothing else going on. I'm only spending most of my week on robotics. Mm. Who needs another project? I do, apparently.
2: Good for you, I
0: guess. What you need to build is a robot that will do all of the cricket work for you.
1: Yes, that sounds fantastic. Let's get on that.
2: I like that sous vide robot, right? The one that looks like a toaster oven for your kitchen. (laughs) I've never seen that. Yeah, I get it on the advertisements on the, uh, if I'm mobile or whatever, watching YouTube. I get it a lot like, why would I want a robot in my kitchen? It looks like a air fryer or something like that, but apparently it's a smart oven. I don't know. I don't trust things that are smart. They're often very stupid.
1: Very much so. Bill, last week you teased us with the going to be getting new hardware. Okay. So Thanksgiving is over. Black Friday is over. We're even past the Cyber Monday sales. What did you get? It's killing me.
0: Okay, everybody. As promised, <laughs> you're going to hear it first on Linux Out Loud of what I picked out for hardware. A special thanks to my friend, Neil, for emptying my
2: wallet. (laughs) Neil and Matt have something in common, apparently.
0: Quite possibly, except Neil was actually very helpful. More importantly, helped me get out of a slightly panicked mindset that I had at the moment that I was dropping all this money on hardware. And right before the show, I connected up my brand new Samsung 49-inch Ultrawide Odyssey monitor, which was on sale at an incredible price. Using it right now, I can understand why this is going to help my workflow versus the three 24-inch monitors that I had side-by-side-by-side. Making up for that bezel space has really made the experience much more pleasant. And at a better refresh rate, I can already notice that it's less taxing on my eyes.
2: That's wild.
0: So here we go. Down the hardware rabbit hole, the case that I have selected is a Cougar Panzer Black Max Edition. And I specifically selected this case because one of my biggest pet peeves about PCs nowadays that you build is that the power buttons are on the top and not the front. So if I'm sitting with my tower on the desk, that means I have to stand up every time I want to plug in a USB stick, turn it on, hit the reset button, or plug in my headphones, which for me doesn't really work. So I picked this case based on that. However, Looking at the space that I have on my desk now, I may actually return that case and get the Cooler Master high airflow more desktop looking case, which ironically is the same chassis that I use at my professional office. Inside said machine is an AMD 7950X, an Asus ProArt Creator X670E board. Which is an absolute monster of a motherboard. It has 10 gigabit Ethernet built in, which I will absolutely take advantage of. It has four NVMe slots and plenty of room for graphics cards. I put 64 gigs of DDR5 RAM in there. And for storage, I've decided I'm going to take a page out of another host on the Tux Digital Networks page and have separate drives for my OS my home folder, my VMs, and my Steam and other games, and this board supports it. The graphics card that I have chosen for now, and this may change, is an AMD Radeon 6900 XT because it was on an incredible sale, and I'm kind of in the middle with gaming. I don't necessarily play AAA titles, but I'm not always on the retro side either. I like a little bit of both ends of that. The only downside is the only hardware that has arrived right now are the Noctua case fans that I've chosen and the chassis and the monitor. Everything else is going to come in little bits and pieces. Get it? Bits of a computer, pieces of a computer. Yeah,
2: uh, yeah, yeah. I think you should have gone with bites, nibbles and bites. Bits, nibbles and bit. I don't know. Never mind. Forget it. I didn't say anything. Just I'll be quiet. Took the, uh, took the wind out of my sails there. Pal.
1: I think you were headed down the right track, improving on his dad joke just a little bit. Uh, I'll give him I'll give him
0: like a five out of ten on that. Like a five out of ten. I mean the, okay. the effort was right there, but I'm biased because it was pointed back at me. So if he had pointed it at Matt, <laughs> I would have given him a ten out of ten. So I just have to be patient and bide my time and wait for all of these parts to come in. But in the meanwhile, I am going to explore that other chassis just because it will give me more storage and room to breathe inside of a system. So I'm really looking forward to being able to play with that. And like I said, all of you here on Linux Out Loud, our wonderful listeners, got to hear this all first. Wendy and Nate were the first people that got to see me on this gigantic 49-inch monitor. So I did hold my promise to the Linux Out Loud community that you guys got my breaking news.
2: Well, I think that's a fantastic monitor for one. Probably a little too new for me. A little on the pricey side. I know you said you got a song and a dance or is it just a song? I don't remember. But it looks like a really awesome monitor. So if you're going to break it down, it would be like, would it be three four by 3 screens? next to each other or like two not like 16 by 9 ratios? Or how do you feel like it matches up, like works out? It's a 32 by 9,
0: but it's okay. definitely giving me more overall real estate versus the three twenty fours that I had side by side because each of the 24s had probably a half inch bezel on either side. Okay. So I would have to kind of slip the bezels behind each other so that I would have a much smoother experience. And I only have one monitor stand on the desk now instead of three. Right. So I've picked up a ton of space on my desk and I'm trying to figure out what I'm going to do with it. So if anybody has any ideas, drop us a line.
2: Have you considered like a desk mount for it? So you don't have the legs or you just find it sitting on the desk?
0: I think it's sitting on the desk is fine for now. I'm not sure what stand I'm going to be able to find that will support the weight of this monitor. It is extremely heavy.
2: Like an old tube, huh?
0: Yes.
1: That's the problem I ran into with my monitor. So I have a 32-inch 4K, slightly curved, nowhere near as curved as your monitor and when I was trying to find a stand for it, because I did want it to go up and down with my desk, I wanted to be able to move the monitor around, plus having it on a monitor stands really frees up more space on the desk. So I had to do quite a bit of digging in order to find one that would support the weight of my monitor. The other downside of that is they're a lot harder to adjust, right? They're harder to make small, minute adjustments on those monitor stands just because they have to have so much more tension in keeping that weight up in the air. I've liked mine. I can't remember what it is. I will go do some digging and forward it on to you, but it still may not be heavy duty enough for your monitor because it is one big monitor.
0: We'll see where this goes with the screen. What I do like about how it was built is that it has a nice channel for wire management that slips on and off. The screws that hold the stand to the monitor are very solid. The monitor was packed very well and came with very easy instructions on how to put it together. And I am able to tilt it and adjust the height on the monitor and swivel it to the sides if I so choose. There's a very large lock nut that kind of helps hold it all together. So I'm going to tune it a little bit to my personal preferences. I happen to have a sit-stand desk. So I find that once I set something up, I can pretty much leave it as is. I don't have to compensate for whether I'm sitting or standing or making changes to the desk itself. So I'm very pleased with it so far. I'm curious to see how some games are going to look. And a couple of my friends have texted me and said, yo, you have to install X game or Y game and then send me a screenshot of how it looks. So this will be fun.
2: Let's see how amazing playing a Commodore 64 game looks on a 14.4 screen.
0: At its native 640 by 480 or?
2: No, 320 by 200. That's going to be be a real. Sharpest pixels ever.
0: That's when we start playing (laughs) games with telescopes at that point. You, You sit about six feet back and you point a telescope or binoculars at the monitor while you're playing. That's really how you bathe yourself in in the experience of retro gaming on new monitors.
2: Exactly. There are some games I think would be a lot of fun to play on that. Even games that I play. So those like Lego games, I would love to see how those would be on there. If you can see a lot more of the field or whatever, I think that'd be pretty great.
1: This episode of Linux Out Loud is brought to you by DigitalOcean. Cloud computing can be, let's say, complex. But standing up reliable, affordable cloud infrastructure really doesn't have to be. At DigitalOcean, you can enjoy a comprehensive portfolio of compute, storage, database, and networking products that put your cloud infrastructure in capable hands so you and your teams can get back to doing what matters most building world changing apps that grow your business. Predictable pricing, robust product docs, and services that developers love. That's DigitalOcean. Get support at every stage of growth, from teams of one to teams of 1,000 with simple, powerful cloud computing. Get growing with DigitalOcean. Listeners of Linux Out Loud and members of the Tux Digital community can get started for free. In fact, better than free because DigitalOcean is giving you a $100 credit when you sign up at do.co slash tux2022. That's do co tux 2022 Make sure you get started with your $100 free credit at DigitalOcean and their awesome cloud platform by going to do.co/tux2022. And thanks to DigitalOcean for sponsoring this episode of Linux Out Loud.
0: This week we're talking about the question of does crowdfunding pay off? Now, I know we've all looked at a popular Kickstarter project or another project that we may have seen on the internet that's looking for some funding. Some of these projects end up working out and we get some amazing products in our lives because of it. And sometimes it doesn't quite go the way that we had planned. I know that there's been one project that I was looking very forward to and it fell flat on its face. Nate and Wendy, have you ever encountered a crowdfunded project that just kind of didn't go the way you wanted it to?
2: I have, actually, now. I have to say I have had a good experience with crowdfunding. So I funded the first Pine64 way back when, and I still have it. Although I haven't used it in a while. Shame on me. I'll find a use for it. Bill, I'm sorry. I apologize for not using it. Anyway, I had crowdfunded some other things too. Usually not like at points to where I would get a reward out of it, but it's because I believe in the project. And I don't necessarily want to you know bring up any names because not important. There was one project that I kind of got disappointed by. Now, I didn't fund this one. I would funded some other things and I didn't want to fund something else. The project was the Atari VCS. You can buy it now. It's very cool looking. I like how it looks. So the Kickstarter began in June, but well, it was first unveiled in June 2017 and uh, the crowdfunding started in May of 2018. At the time, they had some really cool specs for it and whatnot. And by the time it became available, which was I think 2020, December 2020, the AMD Zen processor with two cores and four threads at 2.6 gigahertz with 8 gig of RAM and 32 gigabytes of storage really seemed a little bit underwhelming at that point. You know, it's not awful. It, probably for my style of gaming, it's probably just fine. You know, I don't do a whole lot. It'd be a nice like um, furniture piece, you know, like in the living room or something like that. I don't know how much I would use it. Although I still want to buy it. There's that. And, and Matt keeps periodically showing me where I can buy it from. That's just how Matt rolls. I want to say, this product was actually delivered. It is available. You can buy it. It didn't strike quite when the iron was hot. And I'm kind of glad now I didn't fund it. Not completely lost interest, but like it's kind of fallen off of my radar at this point. It wasn't a success, but it wasn't a failure as far as crowdfunding campaigns go. In my opinion, you know, you can take it for what you want. Also, they put Ubuntu on there, not OpenSUSE. I know what the problem is, because it seems like OpenSUSE would have been, you know, just a better choice. Which I'm sure it would be great on there. But anyway, there have been some other projects that like they just don't deliver... Now I'm kind of worried about... There's another project out there. I don't want to bring it up either. It looks so very cool. And I shared it with Jill because of how cool it looks. But I just don't know if I'm ready to hop on that crowdfunding bandwagon right now. that makes any sense. Makes
0: sense to me. The project I was looking forward to that was being crowdfunded would allow you to add two screens to your laptop. Hmm. And when I was traveling as much as I was... I liked the idea that I could take a single monitor laptop and turn it into a triple monitor laptop by pulling two tabs on either side of the screen and giving myself an additional two sets of screens over a USB-C interface. Unfortunately, that project did not pan out, and since then, others have come to take their place with a much more mature platform that works on Mac, Linux, Windows, or Chrome meaning that it's not tied to the DisplayPort protocol. I'm not traveling so much anymore, so I no longer have a need for that device, but I was rather astonished that a project that had so much momentum simply had the wind taken out of its sails and just sat there stagnant. People were promised product that would be delivered, and then unfortunately they never got it, and I can see why that would sour some people in the community from not wanting to help crowdsource. I do think crowdsourcing has a place and I think it can be used for a whole lot of good. Much like you mentioned Pine, look what that company's been able to do with the Pine phone and the Pine Node and the Pine Time. They just continue to amaze me time and time again with what they're able to do with their resources and their hardware.
2: Yeah, this is true.
1: There definitely are some positives and negatives. And it's been the worry about the negatives that's kept me from... Any of the crowdfunding stuff, actually, I take that back. There are some books that I would love to crowdfund because the author has been fantastic about getting the books put out. Anybody who crowdfunds the books gets it a little bit sooner than when they're officially published. But I'm usually too late to the game and the crowdfunding is over for it already. So I'm stalking this author because this next book that's coming out, I have to get it before June. I have to have it before June. It's killing me not knowing what happens next. But when it comes to hardware, that's where I've been a little bit more, uh, I'm not sure. And we've definitely seen some people in our community get burned from going ahead and funding a project and then... Either that project takes forever to deliver or that thing never gets delivered period at all or what does get delivered doesn't hold up to the promises that were in that crowdfunding information page. And so it definitely is a mixed bag. I'm actually looking at a project right now that I think looks like it's a lot of fun. Of course, it's definitely dealing with robotics or robotics kits it is using some established hardware parts in order to make this all work. That one might be one that pans out pretty well, but unless I've seen a group of people consistently put out a product they crowdfund it and then you there's definitely a return on that investment you're getting what they promised and it doesn't necessarily have to be exactly within the time frame they promised production issues can happen I can understand if there's delays but I don't want it to be two years worth of delays right I mean I give you a wiggle room of three months maybe up to six months but then there's kind of a point where you're like hey am I ever getting that device and so that's what's kept me from doing any crowdfunding as far as the hardware side goes. But then you bring up an excellent point, Bill. There could be other amazing open source hardware out there. It is their first time putting out this piece of hardware, so they don't have any history behind them, right? Everybody has to start somewhere. And I don't know, that's a roll of the dice that I am uncomfortable with. Like there's some people that can step out and make that happen. And I would love for those people that can do amazing things to get that funding. But I'm also the same person that it takes me forever to pick up computer parts. Because I am back and forth constantly on, okay, this is the budget I have to spend. And how can I get the best bang for my buck? And I spend lots and lots and lots of time researching Before I make a single hardware purchase, I am the hardware addict on the Hardware Addict show that I don't care if it is, quote unquote, the best of the best. Does it fit the price per performance? If it doesn't, if it's not there, I'm not paying that much for it. And so it makes it even harder for me to jump into a Kickstarter.
0: I'm generally not allowed to discuss purchasing a new computer here at home because I find that certain decisions are far easier, like choosing a pope, electing a president, buying a house. All of those (laughs) things are easier than Bill buying a computer. Fortunately for me, this was a pretty straightforward build because the new generation hardware was out. I know how long I want the computer to last for, but I have terrible OCD, so I won't actually be building it. My shop manager where I work has offered to build it for me and he said he would make it look absolutely perfect. So, Wendy, I can relate to your plight about being selective when choosing a crowdfunded project to spend your money because if it doesn't pan out, that money's gone. And then what do you do? It starts to sour your taste of contributing going forward.
2: Now, I will say the, I don't know if it was considered crowdfunded, but the Steam Deck they had to bring it up. Of course. That was essentially sort of crowdfunded in the beginning. Is it considered crowdfunded? Five bucks a deposit on it? I don't know. Yeah, that went out well, but also the company that behind it and just a fly by night company.
1: I don't know that I would necessarily say that that was crowdfunded. I think they were wanting to see how much interest there was and you had to put at least $5 on it to show your interest, not just, yeah, I want one and then... They have a whole bunch of people saying that they want one and not a whole lot of people actually willing to buy. I think it was a step towards, yes, I'm interested and I'm actually willing to put some money down on that interest, which I think it panned out very well for them. I like what you brought up before, Bill, in the realm of things being able to sour you if they don't pan out. And I guess that's where I'm definitely more comfortable in. In funding is actually donations to open source projects that I use. They're well established. I know what they're going for. These are projects that I rely on. And so kicking some money to them makes a whole lot of day to day sense, makes a whole lot of sense in the scope of making sure that this project that I use is still around, budget sense. And I would love to hear from some people in the community who have seen some really awesome wins in crowdfunding some hardware because i feel like all too often we only hear about the negative stuff and not really the positive stories that come out.
2: Yeah, this is true. I'd like to hear some wins. How do you vet a project? How do you gauge it whether or not it's it's something that you can jump in behind? I'm not going to lie. I sometimes jump on something that like emotionally, you know, clicks with me because you know they do a good marketing campaign and it and hits all the right buttons. But sometimes I'm not very objective about it as well. I guess it's a good method to gauge the the legs of a project, I guess. It's actually going to make it to the end of the race. This episode of Linux Out Loud is sponsored by Bitwarden. Bitwarden is the password manager that we use and trust. Bitwarden lets you set up things like a pin to easily access your password manager, as well as additional authentication, such as master passwords, and adding phrases to fingerprint security, all to keep your passwords safe. Bitwarden is the easiest and safest way for individuals, teams, and businesses to store, share and sync sensitive data, go to bitwarden.com/tux to get started for free. Make the smart move like many from the community and have a go at bitwarden.com/tux to get started for free. If you're like me though, you'll want to show your appreciation by signing up for the premium edition, especially since the premium edition starts at only $10 a year, and for that $10 premium account, you'll get things like one gigabyte encrypted file storage, two-step login with YubiKey, U2F and Duo, Vault Health Reports, and so much more. Also, you'll get priority customer support, huh? Thanks to Bitwarden for sponsoring this episode of Linux Out Loud. So speaking of projects having legs,
0: Nate, I'm interested in this 16-foot Lego table that you're putting together. Now, the question that I have for you is, To put a Lego table together, do you have to start with a table full of Legos made out of Legos?
2: Okay, the first answer is eight legs. It has eight legs. The second answer is I did start with a different table with Legos out here in Cubicle Labs, but I decided that because of the manufacturing stuff that I'm starting to do yet, not ready to talk about, requires a little bit more space, I need to basically consolidate like where my play stuff is versus where my work stuff is and how much play stuff I actually have out because I have to have other things anyway where the lego table was is where I'm going to be putting like a pinball machine and some things like that FYI but that's aside the lego table I want to build a place in the house. So it wasn't really working having the Legos out here because the kids want to play at odd times essentially or like in the winter time it's not really fun to bundle up just to go play with Legos and then bundle back up to go get hot cocoa. It's just not a good time, right? Actually I started this project basically like back in I want to say June was when I started really thinking about it and making some of the modifications to do that. I purged a lot of things in my basement. I moved here last year. I purged a lot of things out and then organized a lot of things. Then I repaired the concrete floor. Sealed it with like some, you know, concrete dry lock paint. And then where there's a drain in the floor, I put like a a stainless steel mesh. Then I built the tables on top of it. Which by the way, three quarter inch, four by eight sheets of MDF that are finished. They are extremely heavy and I will never bring MDF into my basement ever again. Never, ever again. It was actually quite painful to do. I ended up smashing my finger doing it, my middle finger on my left hand. Anyway, I just can't use my middle finger on my left hand right now, I guess. No, it's actually fine now. The fun thing about this being an old farmhouse is that apparently when they put in the floor, the idea of making it level was just kind of an academic thing. It didn't actually really apply the ideas of making it level and have things slope properly. So, back to the legs on the eight-leg Lego table, four foot by 16 foot long table in this room, using my laser level determine how much shorter I had to make the legs of the table on one side of the basement so that if you set something down it wouldn't you know roll
1: oh my goodness
2: yeah i mean it doesn't matter with the kids like the kids don't care the ceiling is also a little bit low for me i i bang my head on ductwork but it's perfect for the kids. And I got little interlocking foam play pads, I guess you'd have. So, I, I still have to lay those out. But I'm, I got those, I'll be putting around the table and everything else. And the kids are very happy because it's easier for them for having fun. And also now, it means that the room that we do like our schoolwork isn't littered with Transformers and Legos or right now, the other flavor of the month is cars like from the Disney movies, Cars 1, 2 and 3 and everything else. So, there's a lot of that going on right now too. So, that all has its place. And now, separating like, you know, the dry land from the water here, you know, the murk, and that's kind of how it feels right now. So, it's, it's a good feeling to have like a nice space for the kids to play and to enjoy toys that doesn't make the areas of the house you want, well, you want to be presentable a mess. And that's what I like about it.
1: The downside is that table can only be right there because it is purposely made for that spot and that slope to keep the table itself level.
2: Well, if I really decided to repurpose the table, I would have to take the MDF out of there and that's going to be a big pain in the rear end. So I'm not really inclined to do that. I think a couple inches on one side and maybe just slightly more on the other. I could just replace the two by fours. It's not a big deal. If I really needed to... Yeah. It's not huge.
1: Yeah, that's true.
2: Um, Or I could just shorten the other legs.
1: Yeah, make them all even that way if you're moving it somewhere else so they're all the same height as the shortest leg. I totally understand what you mean though about the MDF. When I built my desk, that's exactly what the top of this desk is made out of. I couldn't find one inch MDF, so it is two sheets of half inch MDF for the top of this. I'd like to say it's a lot like Plywood, right? It's not a regular piece of wood, medium density fiber board, MDF. I think that's what the acronym so, yeah. stands for. And it really is pretty heavy duty stuff. It has some decent weight to it. And it does make great tops for tables, for desks. Many different projects, especially if you're covering it up with paint or whatever. But yeah, it can be a bit of a pain to move it in and out of there. I actually hauled my MDF in the back of my Ford Excursion. I absolutely love that vehicle. I haven't touched it in like a year and a half because of... How much it gets per gallon of gas mileage-wise makes me want to cry, and I do miss that vehicle. Like, I see it every time I walk out of the house because it's still in the driveway. I just don't drive it anymore. But it was fantastic because I was able to haul that four-foot by eight-foot MDF in the back of that, get it home, take it out, build a desk. Fantastic stuff. And getting it downstairs would have been An absolute pain. So
0: do you measure your gas consumption in that vehicle as gallons per mile?
1: No, no. It's (laughs) still miles per gallon, but it's not very many miles per gallon. And that is why my favorite vehicle that I've ever owned... Is sitting in the driveway not being driven.
0: I'm sad to hear that, but I'm actually even more sad to hear that Nate is unable to salute his fellow motorists with his left hand when his finger is injured. We call that the
2: (laughs) New England salute. Oh, the New England salute. I thought it was a New York salute, but hey, that'll work. Yeah. They use both hands in New York. Ambidextrous saluting there, huh? Yes. Wendy, looks like you've made some uh, adjustments to your GPU fan curve. I didn't know that was a thing.
1: It is a thing, and it's really more on the software side of things. My fan curve looks pretty much the same, but I switched the software that's doing it. So before, I was using an application called Radeon Profile. It took a little bit of setup, but once it was up and running, it actually ran super, super smooth. And then when I didn't want my fans kicked up quite as high, I'd move back to the default setting instead of the custom setting that I built. One of the things that I did not like about this one, you had to basically shut the computer down twice. You couldn't manually put it to sleep because it was keeping the system awake. So that was a big downside of that program. But every single time I started up, it immediately kicked on as soon as I was logged into Plasma, went to work on the fan curve that I had. I never had to worry about that. One of the ways that I got around the shutdown issues is I just open up the terminal and power off from there. That got around it pretty good. Now I'm using a piece of software called Core Control, and there are some things that I definitely like about this one more, and it does still have a few downsides here and there. It looks really nice. You can set up multiple profiles with it. Not only can you do some really nice custom curves or customizing on power usage for your GPU, you can also do a little bit of tweaking on your CPU. I don't have any tweaking done on my CPU, just the fan curve on my GPU. This one though, I do have it set to auto start, but you need to put in your password every single time in order to get it to work so if I start started the computer I log in walk away forget about it then core control doesn't actually start and I have to manually like think about it oh yeah launch it in order to keep that CPU in that cooler temperature like I said I don't mind having a really noisy system I've got it turned off right now because we are recording but I don't really mind having a really noisy system because my goal is the extended life of the hardware this is an older used graphics card. It does need rethermal pasted. I do need to go ahead. I know, and I keep mentioning this like every week. I do need to go ahead and order some thermal pads so I can get that done. And then my fans probably won't be kicking up as much. Or I can have a fan curve that's not quite so aggressive. When playing Bendy and the Dark Revival, forgetting to turn that fan curve up. The graphics card was heating up a lot. It was getting hotter than what I'm typically comfortable with. And so I really would prefer this one if I could get it set up to auto launch every time without having to remember to put my password in to do it but graphically it looks nice. And then I don't have to worry about the power down issue. So I'm not the only one who powers down my computer. Sometimes it's Magneto, sometimes it's the kids. And it's really nice not to have to go shut down a wait, it didn't shut down. And you have to go through that process again. Both, I think, have their positives and negatives. Both are great for creating a custom fan curve. Recommend them both. But right now... Core control is what I'm using. Bill, one of the wonderful things about having you back on the show is all of the stuff that you know about internet things. And you are getting to secure some IoT devices using separate subnets. I'm curious as how you're making this work. And are you doing this for you or are you doing this for a client?
0: So this particular situation is for me at home more than anything else. But what I'm finding more and more is that At my client's offices and larger buildings even, they are implementing IoT devices like smart thermostats and smart HVAC controls, smart lighting, more IP cameras, even digital signage. Most of us know that those IoT devices like to call home, whether it's a public cloud provider like Google or Amazon, or sometimes it's a private provider such as the manufacturer of the system. What I like to do is ensure that that traffic that calls home is not able to access my internal network at the same time where my desktops and laptops and other sensitive stuff may be held. What I've done at my house is create on my firewall a separate network with its own Wi-Fi username and password, and that network is not allowed to touch my internal network, but my internal network can talk to the IoT network. So it's a one-way conversation where I can use my phone to get to those devices, but those devices can't necessarily get back inside. I'm going to take this a step further in my own home where I am having a new internet connection installed tomorrow. The way that internet connection is going to be set up is the IoT devices will actually go out their own public IP address So for anybody that's taking telemetry off of my IoT devices and gathering information about my IP address, gather away because the only thing coming off of that public IP will be the IoT information. It's a similar strategy that I've also deployed at clients' offices where I have the flexibility to do so. And I don't always do that with the public IPs, but in my case, I'll be able to do that. I would strongly encourage you, if you have the ability to create a Another guest network on your router or create another what's called VLAN or virtual LAN, Uh, all that means is that you're kind of splitting your network into two different parts. You know, one part is your day-to-day use, your printers and your computers, your laptops, maybe your cell phone, and the other network, which kind of lives in its own bubble with some restricted rules around it, allows your IoT devices to connect out to the internet Let's say you use Google Home or Apple HomeKit or Home Assistant and you're controlling Home Assistant from the outside, but none of those devices can get back into your internal network. It's a nice way to ensure that if maybe let's say there's a breach on your network and somebody compromises one of your IoT devices that the attacker has limited or no access to be able to get back and access your more sensitive devices in your home network. Everybody knows that I enjoy playing around with different network devices and network firewalls and switching and access points. So I'm learning how to do that on a variety of hardware appliances, such as Fortinet, SonicWall, Cisco. I know how to do it in PFSense, OpenSense. I can do it in Ubiquity. But I like learning how networks talk to each other. So I tend to spend some money here and there on a device on eBay that I learn how it works and then I just turn it back around and resell it for some fun. But what I'd really like to get into is a full-featured home assistant system with tablets on the wall where I can make changes and control lights and set temperature, maybe even do some neat automations. I've set my outdoor lights up now to where It has a Christmas routine, changed the lights to red and green, turns on the reindeer in the front yard, makes my wife really happy to where I can maybe someday monitor solar connections if I decide to put solar on my roof. And Nate, I know you have some experience with that. I do. You and I will be talking at some point regarding how that all works. Your propensity to create projects in Home Assistant always inspires me to say, well, you know, that looks like fun. I should try that someday when I have time and money and mental bandwidth.
2: I think the time is the harder part.
0: The time is the most difficult part. Time management is one of those things that gets harder and harder as you get older, as you take on more responsibility in life. But to me, it's still important to find time to continue to learn and expand your horizons with your technology.
1: I love all the awesome stuff that you do with your network. And I really wish that you were closer because there's so much that I want to learn about network stuff, but it would be so nice just to be like, hey, why don't you come on over? I'll cook you some food and you can show me how some of this stuff works.
0: If I'm ever out that way again for travel, I will definitely let you know. Love it. You know you can always ping me at any time. If you have any network questions and I will help you through whatever problems that I
2: can.
1: Yeah, you're pretty awesome in that way.
2: I do have to say there is something I do need to talk to you about as far as like network segregation and everything else. I have no smart devices on my cubicle estate that has any phoning home outside of if they can't reach my internal network time protocol server, they will go out to a public one. That's the only thing that I have right now with them because they're all hazmatized and so forth. I do have them intermingled right now with the rest of my network, which isn't a problem as of yet. I feel like I really need to like put them on their own like maybe Wi-Fi if nothing else. They have their own place to go and I would like to segregate it. But at the same time, I got to make sure that home assistant can talk to them. And then like if I want to access them directly from like my laptop or computer or whatever, that I can access those devices directly directly. I don't know the first thing in all that sort of business, which is why I don't have devices that own home, basically.
0: I'm very jealous of how you're able to find or build or create devices that don't necessarily have to call back to a public provider to get information or for you to be able to access remotely. It's phenomenal. And my goal is that someday I will be able to do the same thing that you're doing in that respect. But one recommendation that I can make To you out there who are thinking about creating a separate Wi-Fi is to hide that Wi-Fi. So you would go into your router and there's usually a box that says, make this SSID visible. In that case, you would create the network with a password, of course, a good password. And you would uncheck that box to make it visible. Or if the box says hide this SSID or hide this Wi-Fi, you would check that box. Now, in your brain, you will need to remember what the network name is along with the password. But what that does is that prevents people who are coming to your home from finding that IoT network. So my internal and my home networks are not visible. Only my guest network is. If you come visit my house, unless you really know what you're doing, you will not be able to easily scan down my networks. You will only find the guest network, which... Is only allowed to access the internet and nothing else.
2: Gotcha. I have an MB server, media server. I like to be able to provide that media to them if they want to like watch, you know, stuff. Because you no, know, I have things that some streaming platforms don't have because you know I got been collecting it for a long time. Is there a way then to like maybe bridge just a couple of IPs or whatever over to the other networks so they can access that plus the internet?
0: Using firewall rules, you can allow IPs and/or ports to pass traffic between. Networks. You could say, for instance, I will allow port 443 from my restricted network to my inbound network on this IP only. I'm just using that as an example of a port. It could be whatever port you so choose, but really dive in and understand what ports are needed. You can also configure a service called MDNS, which is also known as Bonjour if you're an iPhone user. And what that basically does is it allows you to connect devices to each other that are on different subnets using their built-in discovery tools. So if you have a printer that you're trying to add, normally you click into your desktop environment's control panel of choice, whether you're using Plasma or Gnome or XFCE, and you say find printers, and all of a sudden your printer just magically appears and you can connect to it and install it, if you're lucky. Printers are Notorious for being difficult.
2: That's because everything with a printer is a suggestion.
0: Everything with a printer is a suggestion. And my favorite suggestion regarding printers is to hit them all with 10 pound sledgehammers. (laughs) Speakers. But there are ways that you can allow your IoT devices to be visible to your internal network by configuring certain rules in your firewall or your router. So if you see a setting that says MDNS, uh, you can turn that on, but just understand that you may incur some security issues if it's not set up correctly. And again, it's what I always tell people is you have to find that balance between security, functionality and convenience. Because if you go too secure, you might not be able to use your devices. If you go too convenient, you're asking to get hacked. And if you go for too much functionality, you'll have all the bells and whistles but you won't know how to use them. And you won't know how to secure them. So going to the extreme of each of those has their
2: drawbacks. I just try and keep things running, which doesn't always work.
1: Yeah, there can be some ups and downs to just keeping stuff running. Yeah, Like when you turn off your network when you're leaving for the weekend and then you come home and Unbound doesn't want to restart. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I mean, I've never done that. Never had that experience. So I have no idea what I'm talking about.
2: <laughs> None at all, huh? None at all.
1: None at all. No clue. I have
0: found sometimes that if I make my home network environment too restrictive or too locked down, that affects other people in my home from being able to work when they're working at home. So I, too, have to strike a balance between what I find is ideal to use in my home network versus the amount of effort it takes to keep such type of network up and running. Now, since I do professional IT all day, the last thing I want to do when I come home is professional IT. (laughs) So I try to make sure that my network is not so convoluted that it's impossible to work around if there's a problem with it. But at the same time, I do value my security as much
2: as possible. Yeah, it makes sense.
1: Kind of a give and take, not wanting to actually do work at home, but still keep your network safe. You don't want your wife mad at you because she can't get her work done.
0: I installed a pie hole on my internal network, thinking that would really help things out. And what I learned was that my wife wasn't able to do her job as a result of the pie hole running. So that was one of those instances where I had to focus on functionality more than anything else. And I will revisit putting a pie hole in and reconfiguring it when time allows. But right now I've got bigger things to deal with than messing around with pie hole at the moment.
1: Yeah, I totally get that.
0: Now it's your turn to toss in your two cents on today's topics. Hit the discourse form, drop us a line under this video, or on the contact form by visiting tuxdigital.com slash contact. If you would like to hang out with us on our preferred social media, see the links at the bottom of the show description. Find other great shows like Hardware Addicts, GameSphere, Linux Saloon, and Sudo Show, and more at tuxdigital.com. Show off your love for your favorite podcasts and shows by visiting the Tux Digital merch store. Grab yourself some awesome swag like the gamer-centric I paused my game to be here shirt or join hashtag Team Wendy with some sinister Wendy swag. As always, we thank you for joining us. We'll be back next week with another awesome episode of Linux Out Loud. Until then, keep the banter friendly, conversations somewhat on topic, and have lots of fun doing it.